Hello, and welcome to the Antioch Fort Worth weekly podcast. At Antioch, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and his purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on a Sunday morning, please visit AntiochFortWorth.com. It's really, really good to be here. It's an honor to be here among loved ones and uh you know, to, to talk about the story of the story of my my life is the story of redeemed brokenness. Preachers aren't supposed to be broken, but I have been and I am. I am re- being. I'm on the way to being redeemed. I'm a work in progress. And in, in my life, just to uh, so Lord, just be with us as we tell this story and as we talk about story but especially as we honor Jesus. Help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's three, I just said three seasons of my life. The first season, the story was the true church story. Yeah. I was in the, that was 1950s. I'm really old. And 1950s Church of Christ, we were the true church. And... We had restored the New Testament church. (laughs) Y'all are laughing? God help you. Uh, It was, uh, you know, it was, I I learned later, I believed it all when I was 18. So if you have uh, children that are going through questioning, just nurture them in it. We need to question. You can't, you can't be saved based on your dad's faith. It won't work. What I found out later was this was a, a sect. Actually, it was a failed unity movement. It started out to be Christians only in 1832 with a great big vision, and it led to the only Christians by 1932. Things change over time in every denomination. Denominations themselves are a, mis- are a mistake. You know, while I'm talking about it, black churches and white churches are a mistake. Unfaithfulness to the kingdom. In 1952, the vision of 32 was still strong. You know, when, when I was 10 years old. Our scripture then, Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was it. Now, you know, that was true. But it was cherry-picking one verse out of a big, wonderful Luke Acts out of a bigger story. So it just wasn't all the truth. Growing up, though, the music, the acapella music, was better than the teaching. It was powerful. Changed people. The hospitality was wonderful. And the third thing was those people really believed it. And they meant it. For a while I trashed them, but I stopped after a while too. You know, and, and the system began to fall apart for me at age 25, and I just kind of wonder what I'd do. I wanted to go out and throw up when I realized we were not the true church, really. 
I read a poem recently, well, years ago now, Lord Tennyson's poem in, written in 1834 or so, in memoriam. He's, he's eulogizing a friend, and he says, Our little systems have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of you, and you, O oh Lord, are more than they. Yes. But I've known a lot of folks who, when the system died... They tossed Jesus with the bathwater. It all went, and they've never come back. You know some of those. For me, I realized I've only got one place to go now, Jesus. Wow. Read the Gospels and just see what happens. I did. But you know what? I was too arrogant for a mentor. I needed a mentor. I had more gifts than I had wisdom by a long ways. You know. And so I moved into my second phase. Uh, my second, the second season of my life was stardom in my success and happiness one act play. That's what it was. It closed too. You know, it didn't run that long. Cheap grace. Avoid community. Legalism was the enemy. A cherry picked a better scripture, Ephesians 2.8. By grace you're saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. But I didn't read chapter 1. And I didn't read verse 10 that says you're created in Christ for the purpose of good works. And I didn't read to 11 following that we're all brought together. He's knocked the wall down. None of it. So it was true. But it wasn't anywhere near all of it. And the dangerous part of that was that it was freedom from something. And when you are only, when we are only free from something, we are dangerously empty. And America knows freedom from, but not freedom for. What fills the emptiness? The self-centered self and the demons. And you know what we end up doing? We diversify our spiritual investments. And now the new triune needs, wants, and feelings takes the place of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And our lives during this season, I would look around and think, man, we're nowhere as fruitful as those good old legalists were back in... Colorado, where I grew up. It, 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 you know, sectarian legalism looked better than secular Christianity. I began to long for a good old legalistic friend <laughs> who really meant it, who was sold out. I got hammered, and this is 50s and 60s. This has all changed. The Church of Christ has changed. And believe me, my, my two dearly beloved parents are dead, but I love them and had a relationship, powerful relationship with them all my life. I'm not trashing any of this. We're all works in progress. I went to law school because of the hatefulness of the sectarian 
mindset. I'd rather have the wilderness of the worldliness of law school where God was never mentioned for three years, though supposedly I was in a Christian law school at Southern Methodist University. But I prefer that to the hatefulness of the sectarians. That was a wilderness time. Finally, finally, I was no longer the superstar. My one-act play closed, and I, be- I came into the third season, the redeemed disciple in the body of Christ. That's who I am. And so th- in this story, you know, the, the scriptures to me are, in the beginning, God created And at the end, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Genesis 1-1 and Revelation 21-1. Those are it. They're the bookends of the whole story. It's about creation and new creation. That's what it's about. And we're all in it. But the center of it is Jesus. And the center of him is the Gospels. Not Paul. Paul is Jesus' apostle, not the other way around. And so I began to look at at the Gospels and see that kingdom comes. Jesus has got one announcement. The kingdom is here. Turn and believe it. He calls people. He fought. And he calls all kinds of people. He calls rejects. And the Holy Spirit's making a comeback. And people are repenting and hearts are being made new. And new communities being formed And then you have Jesus talking about marriage. And this isn't a legalistic statement. This is a statement of becoming a true human being and seeing that your wife is a divine image bearer and that your heart's been redeemed and you can do it. You can do this. But you put, see, what I'm saying is all of it belongs in the story. And that he is calling, he called 12, not 11, not 13, 12. Why? Because he's reconstituting the people of God. But you know, he's not calling the people you would think he'd be calling if he's bringing the kingdom. He calls the poor. He calls the sick. He calls the children. He calls the women. He calls the outcasts. What is he doing? And John says, I baptize in water, but he's baptizing in the presence. In other words, he's baptizing in the spirit. The spirit, the renewed presence of God is coming back to the earth. It is here now. And it's big time here now. And it didn't go back just because we have a Bible. It didn't go back. You know, the spirit The backstory, you know, to this is that at the very beginning in the creation, the spirit was groaning over the creation. And that the book of Exodus is not a book of law. The book of Exodus is really about the presence because it's the presence that comes to Moses at the burning bush. And it's the presence at the end of Exodus that Moses said, hey, we got to have you. I'm not moving without you. And he he wasn't sure God got it the first time, and so he repeats it. Did you get it? We can't go up from here without the presence. 
Now, now when, once you get that, he's got, they got the law. They got the word. They still need the presence. Yeah, yeah. So it's all, always word and presence. Yeah. And the word is the logos, the eternal word. And then scripture is the, the derived words from Jesus. So it's all about the presence and the power of God. Ezekiel says, Israel's not just dead, her bones are bleached. And bleached bones, no doubt, they're dead. Spirit, only the spirit, can give life to us. We are bleached bones. Then and now, word and spirit. Just parenthetically, I begin to realize the Bible's not a legal constitution. It's the book of the mighty acts of God. From the Genesis 1 to the Revelation 21 1. And I begin to wonder why, when we studied stuff like the women in the church, we began 1,800 in pages in my big print Bible for old people. It says, shut up to women, 1,829 pages in. I mean, that's looking for it. You got to really crawl around to find the scripture there to tell women to be quiet. Why not start on verse one that says women in the in first chapter that says women are made in the divine image? What if we found out first who women are? And what if we put that verse in the big story and see where things are moving and what the Holy Spirit's doing? And then try to figure out, this is an occasional letter. And the same thing, we, we did horrific things with pulling out of context, slaves, be obedient to your masters. And, and we're paying the price for that even now. My God abusing the Bible. Why didn't we go back and say, who are you, person of color? Who are you? Well, Genesis 1 tells you. It didn't say he created white people in Genesis 1. He created us, all of us. And so when I began to see the whole big picture and I saw the redemptive movement, everything changed. It all changed. But what had to happen for me is I had to be broken and too arrogant. I began a passionate relationship with a triune God of gracious holiness. I carefully put those words up there because I'm really uncomfortable if you just tell me God's a God of love. No, he's holy first. Holy means he ain't you or me. He's not, he's not the best human being in the world a billion times over. He's holy. He's other. And when we confront him, we shudder. I needed to shudder. And it happened one Sunday morning, we're singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And, and the holiness of God comes on me and, and communicates to me in church that there's not room for your sin, Jim, 
and my holiness anymore. One goes or, or the other. That changed me, an encounter with the gracious holiness of God. And then I realized this is for real. You know, Isaiah had, the, had an experience, this, Isaiah 6, Revelation chapter 1, John's having the same, the same God. Gracious holiness, both places. Not two different gods. This God is talking to me now. Just like he did then. And in those cases, they thought they were dead. He's so powerful, they thought they were dead. Actually, we were beginning to live. And you know, you need to know the holiness of God is in you so you can live a life in which you confront the intimidating powers through your own life. Domesticated deities cannot battle the authorities. They, they don't need their claws clipped. The lion lamb needs to be wild in your life, holy in our lives, so that we can do spiritual warfare. All of this is held together by covenants, though. It, what I feel like as I talk about this this morning is I'm a kid in Discovery Zone. That's what I am. That's what you are. And ever since this third season, man, I just feel like I'm bumping into, oh my gosh, did, did you see that? My word, look at this. You know, J Jamie and I talking, and it's like, have, have you see that? It's there. And this God of gracious holiness is not mad at anybody. My goodness. You know what the covenants are? They're love stories inside an unbreakable bond. And he just, God just is faithful. And this faithfulness breeds hope. It breeds hope to every, anybody here, whatever you've done. And that God will complete what he has begun because he's in the business of it. And that story tells you he's not giving up. Amen. This means our marriages and his churches are held together by covenants and by hope. And that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And the story says this. Paul is ministering this, pastoring this. I just looked at 1 Corinthians 15. You know, it talks about what Jesus, the first things of Jesus, and then it talks about Jesus ruling and reigning, and then it talks about the end when he gives the kingdom over to the Father. Man, it, it, what you had is the past, the present, and the future are in the hands of the Lord. That's what that one chapter says. That's powerful feeding of the church. You can go live your whole life based on that reality. And then my whole life has been finding out what happened to the gospel? Why do so many people don't think it's good news? And my, my one line definition of it or description of it is it's the incarnate son of God, crucified, risen, and ascended to the father who rules and reigns at the right hand of God, and he will reign forever. I can be having a terrible day and announce the gospel to myself, and things change. Or tell Donna to announce the gospel to me, or somebody announce it. Transforms my little pity party. Transforms it.
See, I grew up that the gospel, bless their hearts, was hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Then, second season, it was Christ died for you, so you can go to heaven when you die. Then, we added resurrection onto that. But we never got around to who's in charge of the world. <laughs> Who rules and reigns? That's where Acts 2 ends. That's where that sermon ends. God has made this same Jesus both Lord, Curios, Lord, and Christos, King. This is, this, is what, this is what we confess. And what we begin to realize is this Lord is pouring his Holy Spirit out on the church. And surprising things are happening all over the world. 10 million people apparently are coming to Jesus in house churches in China right now. And Iran has got some outbreak of the Holy Spirit. Nobody can figure out how that happens. He's filling, he is doing things because he has authority. And that's not a four-letter word. It's a lot longer than that. It's not a four-letter word. Someone has got to have the right and the power. Dictators have the power, but not the right. A lot of times we have the right, we don't feel like we've got any power. Jesus has both. And we trust him to exercise absolute power righteously. A long time ago it was said that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that is absolutely true except in one instance. Jesus. The one with downward mobility. The one who brought the kingdom to this world by shedding his own blood, not yours. The one who did not come to explain evil, but he overcame it and he suffers with us. The one who is the firstborn from the dead. Faith is inseparable from knowledge of this God and what he has done. But I remind you this morning, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. And if you ask me a question after church, I'll probably say, I don't know. I got to go pray about that to even give you a decent response. See, faith is always seeking, understanding, and never quite getting there. And that's why we live in hope. Tennyson in that same eulogy is angry about his Henry Hallam, his buddy who's dead. He's grieving and he's eulogizing his friend. And in 1833, he said of Hallam, he said of this guy, I love this. He said he was perplexed in faith, but pure in deeds. At last he beat his music his music was the kingdom. He beat it out with obedience. And he did not have it all figured out. And I love that. Perplexed in faith, yeah. But I have not been pure in deeds. And so this causes me to be pure in deeds and to beat the music I hear. We heard the music, the music of the kingdom. And the last part of it is, of course, is more famous than this part. There lives more faith and honest doubt than in half the creeds. 
It's really important that we understand this and we beat the music out with our lives. The destiny of this world is preordained, but the details are at play. And that, that, it, that includes you and me. For what we do advances the kingdom in some way. The apocalypse of John is saying that all over the place. Number three this morning in terms of just talking about stuff, you know, conclusions I've reached. I've got a big one here. It's on a couple of these slides. That the kingdom, I want to talk about the kingdom and what it means in this American democracy right now. The kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ the Lord, right on top of the kingdoms of this world. We live in the tension of the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. This means the United States Constitution is not our Bible. The Pledge of Allegiance does not replace or even rival the confession that Jesus is Lord. The United States is not the church. The Declaration of Independence is not our call to discipleship. And we do not live to pursue happiness, but to pursue the kingdom. The Bill of Rights has no authority over the Sermon on the Mount. The United States Supreme Court judges are not my ultimate judge. Jesus is. The 14th Amendment rights to equal protection and due process do not replace 1 Corinthians 10.23. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. This kingdom moment calls to be a disciple in this country this year for considerable spiritual discernment within the church about our competing allegiances. We only have one allegiance during the now and not yet of the end times. So this means in this season of life-threatening whatever, pandemics or civil unrest, whatever happens in this country in the next several years, that we give authority to the words of Jesus over our rights under the First Amendment. For example, he calls me to love my neighbor as myself, whether I feel like it or whether I don't. He also calls me to love my enemy. He doesn't say don't have any enemies. He says love them. If, you are, if we're courageous in the marketplace, we'll have some enemies. He calls me to witness to his authority in the public square, not by asserting my rights at the expense of you, at the expense of my neighbor or my enemy. He, he calls me to lift up Jesus Christ as Lord. Remember this, Jesus gave up his rights, humbled himself and became one of us. I have to believe the church in America has an opportunity to declare and to embody the kingdom. Also but flowing out of that is the community. During this stage in my life, in this last hunk, hunk of time that's gone on 30 to 40 years, I, I, got, I really got into the church in new spirit-filled community. I was saved at 13. I joined the church at 48. 
48. You didn't know me, I knew you. I never, nobody ever knew who I was. I know a lot of pastors who've never joined the church. Nobody knows them. Finally, in, in 1990, I told the church the truth about our struggles in our marriage and my sin. You know, that has made all the difference. For 30 years now, these, these small churches have literally saved our lives, saved our marriages, and we've been a part of sharing our life. I found that the ontology of church, the reality of church is Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's what is real. That in the church, we, we are called to confess our sins and hide our righteousness, not the other way around. That the church is ugly in some ways when you see the bad stuff. Yet Christ is our hope. Christ is not finished with any of us. Any of us. If you look at somebody that's really messed up right now, I want you to understand you can look at them and judge them and all that kind of stuff, but I want to tell you, Christ isn't finished with them. He loves them. He's out to change them. See everybody, see everybody through the Christ lens. We regard no one now from a human point of view. I see, I want the, I'm asking for the lens of Jesus to help me see everybody as he sees them. Otherwise, I will see you as I am. And what I'll do is project on you. I won't see you by revelation. I need to see you by revelation. When, Peter looked, when Jesus looked at Peter and said, you're the rock, he was not saying, Peter, way down inside of you, you're the rock. No, that's psychobabble. No, he was saying, way down inside of Jesus lives the vision and the power for Peter to make Peter the rock. But it's going to hurt. And it did. But he became the rock. Something else I've found is that salvation happens once. Conversion never ceases. John Newton, I just want to talk about the amazing grace. John Newton in 1725 is born, dies in 1807. He wrote, he was saved in 1748, and he sold slaves on a boat. He was commander of ships, slave ships. They went out and kidnapped people and sold them in 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 the Americas for 12 to 15 more years after he became a Christian. He felt really good about it. People tell me they feel really good about themselves. Well, that's overrated. <laughs> he finally has a stroke and he spends time with the Lord quietly and he comes to conviction of what he had done. He is horrified. He's puking. He's nauseated. He's amazed, though. There's something even stronger than his nausea, that God is still with him. He's amazed at God forgiving him for what he did after he became a Christian. 
after he was saved and after his slave trading days, he was ecstatic about the grace that did not kill him but forgave, reconciled, and restored him. He also knew that he was converted. See, again and again. See, Newton was getting converted over and over and over. I'm, the Lord's converting, reconverting me all the time. I told Jamie when I heard N.T. Wright uh, a lecture for two hours, I got converted again three times. <laughs> and that in a week, I got reconverted 24 times. I got saved once. I need to be brought up into the glory all the time. Otherwise, what are we doing? He, he, he's got stuff for me to do, but I got to see the glory to do it. And he wants to prune me for fruitfulness. So I move from, you know, and before I move away from, from uh, uh, Newton, he wrote Amazing Grace in 1772, 24 years after he was saved. When he realized he had been, he was being saved as a slave trader. He realized the amazing grace 24 years after he became a Christian. And so what led him, what happened then is he realizes we got to abolish this. This had, a, there, there is social concern that comes out of the gospel. And he runs into William Wilberforce and he becomes his mentor and guide and he gives him passionate counsel and Wilberforce starts introducing that legislation in parliament and 20 years later, it led to the abolition of slave trading. Why? Because God never gave up on John Newton. Because he converted him a whole bunch of times. We're always being pulled up we're being moved from being happy to being joyful, from being successful to being faithful, from being isolated to being surrounded by family, from the Holy Spirit light to Holy Spirit immersion. We're moving from the right to choose to the Lord God's predestinating purposes for us. And along the way, I've learned this, that discipleship leads to maturity, but maturity is through and on the other side of suffering. You know, when, when Jesus uh, tells Ananias to go tell, talk to Paul, tell him about his conversion, he says, tell him two things. You're going to go to the nations, you're going to suffer a lot. Suffering, will, if you, we are faithful in the Holy Spirit to the Lord as we suffer, we mature. And when you read Hebrews, that's what Hebrews is saying. And I, I don't like that word but I'm much more mature now because I've suffered and I've often suffered because I shot myself with my own sins. I hurt myself and I hurt others. Also, the true story radicalizes us. It's radical love for full-time worship service in the world. All of us are called to follow Jesus. All of us are called to full-time work in the world. All of us are called to live a life worthy of the calling. I told a bunch of Baptist pastors one time that all of us are called, not just pastors, and they said, well, that might be true. And I thought, what? That might be true? 
This is true of all of us. We're all called. And our lives have been dismembered by the powers of separation. We're being brought back together in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, the cultural mandate that we take care of the creation of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, the great commandment of Matthew 22, to love God and love your neighbor, and the great commission of Matthew 28 are all brought together. Life is pulled together. Creation and new creation in Christ. There's nothing like this on the planet, guys. This is rich stuff. I'm, I'm a kid in a candy shop, man. The second thing I want to tell you is Jesus brings a worship explosion to the world. Y'all are into something here about worship. Before him, they, the pagans had, they only had worship inside these little temples with professional priests. And they had this little liturgy they did. And they were always pacifying or making sure these gods liked them. Think about how the transformation of this, as they hear the gospel, and as they offer up their lives. And Paul's saying in Romans 12, just go out and present your body as a living sacrifice to God. This is your spiritual service all the time. We're responding to the riches of God's grace and gratitude all the time. Everybody's doing full-time worship service all the time. This saved my law practice. My, my office was a worship altar. That's what my chair was. Eight times in Colossians 3 and 4, it says, do all you do to the Lord. And it's talking to people in all phases of life, slaves, masters, husband, wife, parents, everybody, all the time. This means justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The weightier matters are really important. And finally, General Manley Hopkins said this, and I love this. And this is a word for you. Because I, I just want, to, I want you to see, man, what a, what a cool and wonderful thing all this is. Christ plays in 10,000 places. He's lovely in limbs. And he's lovely in eyes, not his. To the Father, through the features of men's faces. That's what he does through y'all. He's lovely. He plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his. To the Father, through the features of men's faces. This speaks to my heart and my life. We have this treasure in broken pots. You say, well, mom really messed up. Hey, you're a good container for the kingdom. He comes into people who are bankrupt and know it and know they are. I can tell you from personal experience, he doesn't work with arrogance real well. He works with broken people really well. He works, and he wants to play in your life. We have the treasure in broken pots. We do all this together. We belong together. 
Ephesians 2 says he's building us up together. We're a kingdom of priests here. How many priests in this room? You see all this prayer going on. We're going to do this right now. All this prayer going on because we're a kingdom of priests. The Levitical priesthood has exploded and the whole church is full of priesting. And you've got to love people to priest to, you know, intercede and cry out for them. This is what's happening. The treasure has come to the world. We're in a big story and we're just a bunch of toddlers in Discovery Zone. That's what I am. That's who I am. You know, so would y'all stand please and would the worship uh, band and singers come up and would the, uh, <clears throat> the priests, the prayers come to the front? We have this every week. If you're new here, every week we uh, just invite the church to come to be prayed with, to be prayed for. Uh, you can do this at your seat. Like I said, we are literally a kingdom of priests. You may need to just come down and get a nonverbal word. You may need a hug. I don't know. Just whatever the need is. Lord God, be with us. Somebody is so depressed they can't even cry out right now. Give them the power to cry out and come and just walk forward. Help us to touch each other and love each other. Reach out to each other. Be Jesus to each other. Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Help us, Lord, as, as we enter into this time of priesting, praying, praising. We bring this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Come as you feel it.